You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to everyone uh, joining us for this episode of The Zeitgeist. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. And uh, with me today, as always, uh, when we talk about uh, economic and trade issues, is AICGS senior fellow and director of the geoeconomics program, Peter Rashish. Uh, I'm especially pleased that we've got today uh, two uh, excellent guests who are going to help us talk through the dynamics of the U.S. and German uh, economies. Uh, and they are uh, Matthias Mateis, who is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and an associate professor of international political economy at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies, and uh, Katharina Gnat. Uh, Dr. Gnat is a senior project manager at the Bertelsmann uh, Foundation, where she focuses on European and international economic governance. Well, there's a lot of talk these days uh, about uh, a German word that has started to creep into the English language, at least for people who follow international uh, security policy, and that is Zeitenwende. Uh, sea change. Um, uh, as it's a term that the, the Chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz, used when he talked about the way the world uh, is changing and has changed uh, s uh, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but I think uh, where I'd like to start, uh, uh, Matthias Mateis, if I could, you, you are the author of, uh, of an important critique of uh, the policies of former Chancellor Angela Merkel. It appeared in Foreign Policy last year. I recommend everybody have a look at it if, if you're interested. Um, but the question to start off with, is there any sign of a Zeitenwende, a, a change in thinking in, uh, in German or perhaps American economic policy over the last couple of years since the pandemic? I think the main uh, Zeitenwende that, that's happened was forced by uh, Ukraine and the invasion of, of Russian forces on February 24, even more so than, than the COVID-19 pandemic. That said, there were important, I think, movements that have been underway uh, since the pandemic um, as well. So what the, the article in Foreign Policy tried to do is is critique Angela Merkel from the point of view of what she earned her biggest praise on, especially in, in the United States. And that's what she was, the steadfast leader and promoter of democratic values and the rule of law and so on. And of course, there's plenty impressive about Angela Merkel, but when it comes to the rule of law and you know democracy, I, I think that was probably one of her weaker points, right? She's always very close to uh, Russia and, and China and promoted kind of Germans Germany's geoeconomic interests there, and was very relaxed actually with people like Viktor Orban and even um, Kaczynski in, in Poland, Orban in Hungary, Kaczynski in Poland, uh, and always was on the side of you know moderation and and and, and engagement and and a kind of belief in her own personal powers of of persuasion. Of course, since she's left uh, office, I mean history has moved faster in a sense, right? Is that it would have been hard to imagine this time last year that Russia would actually invade Ukraine and that Europe would have responded and Germany would have responded in, in the way that they have, right? I mean, the question this time last year was very much about Nord Stream 2. Now what's on the table is the future of Nord Stream 1. 
in in a sense that um, Germany is now talking about cutting itself off completely from Russian oil and and gas. And so there, I think the new ideas uh, from Germany very much come from the Green Party, uh, a party that was already very critical of much of Merkel's foreign policy vis-a-vis China and and Russia, and also even critical of how slow the energy transition and, and the transition towards renewables um, has, has been, right? So what, what Ukraine created is a crisis that, at least for the Green Party, created momentum behind many of the policies that they wanted to see uh, in, in place. And, and so are you suggesting that the effect of the COVID-era uh, economic uh, policies and the pandemic response are more ephemeral. I mean, on the one hand, if you look at uh, the the U.S., you had the the Build Back Better uh, program proposed by President Biden, which has not has not gotten through uh, Congress. Uh, Germany has had a massive increase in public outlays for uh, the pandemic response. Uh, on the other hand, they show every indication of going back to the so-called debt break, the uh, um, the uh, balanced budget um, provisions next year. Uh, are, are you saying that these things will, will be a blip, um, whereas the Ukraine crisis will uh, lead to systemic change? So the Ukraine crisis will lead to systemic change in, in foreign policy, right? Defense spending, that's a real commitment. That's within the constitution. We're talking about 100 billion uh, euros, right? Which is a significant amount of money. Weapons uh, delivery to conflict zones, that's a big shift in, in German policy. And I think the, 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 the link, the energy links to Russia uh, when it comes to oil and gas, this is a fundamental shift. On the pandemic um, response, though, I, I think the much more active role that German government has played in industry um, is, is, is here to stay, right? And, and the um, justification in the future will be that when it comes to transitioning towards renewables, when it comes to making the technologies of the future and so on, we, we can no longer rely on, on kind of market mechanisms, right? Whether this will be done purely on a German level, uh, that remains to be seen, right? Because I think there's a push to do this more at the EU level um, as well. Katarina Gnat, over to you. Uh, do you. Is this the end of ordo-liberalism? It might, it might be. Um, there, there was a very good quote going around social media in the first weeks uh, of the um, war on Ukraine. And it basic, the gist was basically that Germany has outsourced its security to NATO or effectively to the US, uh, its energy policy, cheap energy to Russia, and its growth model to China. And I think while the this idea of a Zeitenwende is, was proposed for the security rearm, we are seeing a sort of slow but very firm rethink of the general sort of economic model. That doesn't mean that things will change immediately, also in terms of economic policy. Um, You've just mentioned um, the announcement that Germany is trying to return to the debt break in 2023, but I think we haven't seen, we're not seeing the end of it yet. Um, This is going to be a gradual process also on economics and the German economic model and economic policy making in Germany and Europe. Um, Looking at what both of you have said, it seems to me that when we look at climate, the energy transition, that those sort of issues, perhaps there there was sort of a Zeitenwende already underway uh, in Germany 
Uh, we had the energy vendor, and as, as Matthias, as you said, it seems as if the Ukraine, that the Russia's invasion of Ukraine is going to sort of reinforce that trend that was already there. But when we look at the United States, um, you, know, we, you know, we want to take a comparative view. When we look at the United States, we've just seen that the Supreme Court has eviscerated the ability of the uh, U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to mandate uh, carbon emissions reductions. So are, are we seeing a, a divergence here be, on, on this aspect of kind of, you know, uh, a sea change in economic policy? And if we are, um, you know, what kind of consequences does that have? It's a good question, right? I mean, there's there's all kinds of convergence and divergence between Germany and um, the U.S. on both economic and, and, and energy policy. The, the most worrisome, I think, for people who worry about climate change is the direction the United States has taken even during the Biden administration, right? The, the, the belief was that Build Back Better had a big climate aspect to it. That's something that hasn't been passed. And the fact that the Supreme Court is now gutting uh, or limiting what the Environmental Protection Agency can do and enforce in, in states is extremely uh, worrisome. And that's where I think the US is not just diverging from Germany, but also for, from places like the UK and so on, from much, much of Europe, where this is a, a, a big uh, priority, where there is, I think, more internal division uh, and Katarina highlighted it with, uh, with the, the FDP desire to return to the debt break, but of course they're part of the coalition and this, this, is well, this could well be government policy, is within Europe there's a big battle brewing between Italy and Germany over monetary and fiscal policy, right? Where, where Germany, traditionally worried about inflation, now doesn't see the point of the European Central Bank creating new instruments to deal with divergence in yields between Italy and uh, Germany, because they say OMT already exists. Draghi created it in 2012. The markets believed it. Why not use that, right? The, the fact that the Italians don't like it is because it comes with conditionality, but that's like wanting to have your cake and eating it. While the Italians are saying, hang on a minute, this is about sovereignty, right? I mean, we, we, we still need to be able to make our own uh, fiscal fiscal choices. So there is divergence within Europe on some of this, and also as there is divergence between the US and, and, and Europe, broadly speaking. And maybe jumping on this question of divergence in climate policy, I think the what the war in Europe has really brought to um, the center of attention is that there might be a short-term trade-off uh, in terms of your climate goals and then in terms of your sovereignty or security goals. And we're seeing this uh, within the big debates on what energy uh, products or what kinds of energies are considered to be green and what energies are considered to be a sort of transition um, energy. And the debate within Germany um, whether we have to run uh, coal plants for longer uh, now that we are facing uh, a, probably a very dire winter when it comes to our gas supplies. So I think um, even in, in, in Europe, the jury is out what happens to, to these goals of, of uh, net zero, while there's still a very strong rhetoric to keeping them and also to possibly accelerating um, the move to renewables because that sort of catches uh, two birds with one stone. You you reduce your, your emissions, but at the same time, you make yourself less independent. It is 
costly. And we all know this. We need a lot of investment in this. And facing a sort of cost of living crisis now in many countries of Europe uh, and high prices on energy, on food, rising prices will sort of make it politically much more sensitive and much more difficult um, to, to sort of navigate in the short term this, this climate agenda that the EU particularly um, the European Commission has put forward in the last months and years. Right. But the thinking in, in, in Germany and Europe right now is that this kind of acute crisis may be over this winter and next winter. But there is does. Am I right that there seems to be some optimism that longer term this shift in the economy and the energy economy is going to happen and that'll have positive results? Yes, but the question is, how, how long can you sustain the short term in a democracy? So um, even if it now comes at a price and we have to face sort of serious adjustment costs, um, the question is, we are facing elections in, in some key countries in the coming year. Uh, most, most noteworthy is probably Italy. Um, and there, you there is the danger of a perfect storm. And Matthias has just alluded to, to the question of monetary policy. Um, and the question of the sort of macroeconomic environment, at the same time, Italy is also quite dependent on energy uh, coming from, from Russia so far, similarly to Germany. Um, and so it's not clear what happens to Italy politically um, over the next six to 12 months. Um, and even if everybody knows that this is the right long-term policy, we still need to get through the short term. Coming back to the uh, point that uh, I think each of you have referred to, that is, on the one hand, Germany, in response to the war in Ukraine and Russia's invasion, has created uh, a special fund, so-called Sondervermögen, of 100 billion euros to spend on uh, the Bundeswehr, um, and uh, a commitment also that in the aggregate Germany will spend uh, 2% of GDP on defense. Um, now, Katarina, you mentioned earlier that maybe uh, the return to the debt break, that that might be an open question. And so I want to bring these two points together. Uh, do you see this kind of approach of creating basically an off-budget vehicle um, uh, funded through the emergency provisions uh, in Germany's uh, law as a way of approaching other um, uh, problems uh, and uh, policy challenges that the uh, Schultz government faces? Or do you think there will be other techniques uh, that will that will be used to pursue uh, additional uh, spending? How do you see this taking shape? Is the is the German Defense Fund a model uh, that we can expect to see replicated? When it comes to fiscal policy, both in Germany and Europe, I think we are we really if we're honest, we don't know what sound fiscal policy in these times of war, of climate transition mean. So, and there, there's a sort of similar debate at the European level. We've um, temporarily paused the fiscal rules that are in place with Maastricht. Um, we have the German debt break that was also sort of paused for, for COVID reasons, pandemic reasons. And we actually don't know, and policymakers also are struggling with the question of, how do we go ahead now? Uh, and I think that you, uh, and I think Matthias alluded it already, there is a strong tradition, uh, particularly in the FDP, entering the government uh, to say, we want to go back to um, the black zero, uh, to sound fiscal policy, to sort of um, fiscal prudence. At the same time, 
and that was very obvious already in the coalition talks uh, last autumn, um, there is an understanding among the uh, German coalition partners that there are quite a few things that need to be financed. Um, so the green transition, the digital transition are all sort of long-term investment needs um, that somehow need to be publicly financed. Now, on top of it, we also have the question of how to compensate uh, vulnerable households and groups of populations facing these high prices. So I think the, the, the debate will be ongoing. Um, and all these sort of fixes of Sondervermögen, off-budget uh, funds, are sort of technical way, and we all we know that already also from the European level, of sort of trying to work around this fundamental question of what sound fiscal policy and sort of good fiscal policy will look like in the in the years to come. And so there, I don't I wouldn't say that we we are in a full paradigm shift how you conduct fiscal policy in Europe, but we have, we've we've had this discussion uh, for quite a while, and I think the the reality is also biting those who um, who don't necessarily uh, want to give in to too much public spending. Matthias, yeah. So following up, I mean, I I agree with everything Katarina has said. That I think one thing I would add is the European dimension on this, right? I I'm actually surprised that in back in March there was not more appetite among EU leaders for at least Emmanuel Macron's idea at the time that, you know, now we've, we've done this for COVID, now we need to do this for defense and, and climate in a sense. And with this, I mean, join EU debt, right? And, and, and let the commission lead on this because it was very clear last spring that this crisis was affecting Europe very differently, right? I mean, Poland was overwhelmed by refugees. Clearly, the Baltics needed more defense uh, spending and more direct EU and, and, and NATO protection. Germany, Austria, Hungary, the Czech Republic, Italy needed much more support with energy because they were so dependent on uh, on Russia. So I, there, there is still, I think, a, a case to be made there at, at the EU level that if you do this jointly, not only do you take away pressure from Southern Europe on its high debt, but that you can do this and through another gimmick or, or, or whatever, right? But that if, if the EU does this, somehow it doesn't count as your, uh, as your own debt and it can be financed over the very long term with the idea that this is a war plus a climate a war against climate and that future generations should be able to uh, finance uh, some some of this, right? I mean, I, I don't think Northern Europe is quite ready for it, but nothing like a freezing winter to uh, to to focus the minds, right? So so in 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 that sense, that's definitely uh, possible. And 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 one more thing on the um, the FDP uh, for the FDP, this is a this is a tough coalition so far, right? They haven't been able to kind of shine yet. They're about fiscal restraint. They're about digitization. So far, it's all been about energy and defense. And, and this is not something, I mean, they have the economic ministries, they have the transportation ministry. So it's it's not surprising that Lindner, the finance minister is focusing on, on fiscal uh, restraint and even putting on the table that, you know, savings could come from defense <laughs> if it is to to, to meet these, these, these new uh, fiscal, fiscal targets. 
Um, and and so I, I think at some point they will have to make the case for for what what they were elected on, right? Which was in the end the, the appeal they had for many young people was that Germany, and that's back to the pandemic, right? I mean all the stories we read about German fax machines and you know German bureaucracy when it came to administering vaccinations and and and, and records and, and and so on, and that's something that the FDP said, okay, we we, we need to become a, a, a modern country in the sense that we're fully. Uh, digitized and that again as Katarina hinted at that needs to be financed right and that will have to be done uh, by, by 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 borrowing maybe as, a, as an afterthought another way to finance your investment is also by raising taxes classically but that is something that um, particularly for the liberal party for the FDP is is a sort of no-go so even um, even if their coalition partners the the social democrats and the greens They're not openly talking about it because that's sort of suicide, but would generally, when push comes to shove, that would be an option too, or finding out other sources of, of revenue. Um, that's sort of a very, very difficult um, case to sell to the electorate of the liberals. So I think sort of this two-dimensional game of um, German public finances, but also talking about European public finances and debt, I I would still say that the FTP is sort of signaling that they're not really very much happy with sort of, uh, let's say, sort of a, um, a very loose fiscal policy. But at the end of the day, they know they somehow have to also finance their own projects. They know what reality looks like right now. So coming back to Matthias's uh, point on, on, on the sort of fiscal capacity side of the EU, um, Let's 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 wait a couple more months. I don't think it's a summer topic, but it might sort of come back with a vengeance in in the winter. Uh, and these ideas of having some sort of investment fund and um, some sort of investment platforms for specific European public goods might also be a very sort of clean way uh, for some national policymakers out of this conundrum of their national fiscal rules. Well, we've talked a lot about fiscal policy earlier, Matthias, you alluded to monetary policy. I think you were talking a bit about the risk of fragmentation in the Eurozone. Um, you know, central banks, whether it's the Fed or the or the ECB already have their, their, their plates are already pretty full trying to deal with inflation. It's, I guess in the US, it's a bit more acute. There's more on the demand side here, but it's certainly going to be an issue for the European Central Bank. Um, are, you know, it, overall, do you think that, that governments on the fiscal side will respond enough to uh, this succession of crises we've had? Or are you either of you concerned that with with central banks already uh, having a lot to to tackle, that at some point expectations could uh, exceed, you know, central banks ability to meet them and that this legitimacy of either the Fed or the ECB could be called into question? It's a very good question, Peter, because Much of the, the Eurozone crisis, um, especially the years um, from 2012 onwards after Draghi promised to do whatever it takes and so on, fiscal and monetary policy were kind of working at cross purposes, right? So as you were easing monetary policy, you were tightening fiscal policy. And this kind of got you stuck in this very unhappy equilibrium of a prolonged recession and actually very low inflation, if not deflation. So now we're at in the opposite end where everybody's looking to central banks to do something about inflation and the Fed 
is you know taking a much more aggressive approach here, right? I mean, seventy-five basis point increases with more to come, um, and 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 basically trying to get rates back to two and a half, even three percent. Uh, there's talk about. I mean, Europe is no anywhere near this. That said, um, especially in Northern Europe, the sole mandate for the European Central Bank is price stability, right? I mean, eight percent, eight point six percent, nine percent is is not is not part of this. So, at the same time as central banks feel the need to tighten, Europe is more complicated than the Fed in the sense that then it creates problems for certain countries more than others, especially the heavily indebted ones, and that's why this is an Italian versus German fight and two fundamentally different visions. But at the same time, as we've been talking very clearly, there's all kinds of fiscal demands from from governments. So as they are increasingly going into debt to meet energy demands, to meet um, um, demands that still, you know, that the hangover of COVID, if you want, um, at the same time, they seeing the new debt they're creating become more and more expensive because of the the actions of of the of the central bank. So that's going to create very different problems in Italy than Germany. That's why I was suggesting earlier the only solution is European in this sense because you, you cannot get around the rules fiscally domestically and the rules that the ECB has to follow. Right, the whole idea of buying bonds of the capital key. You can do this temporarily. And with the capital key, I mean, supposedly when, when the ECB buys bonds, they're supposed to buy them in proportion to the size of the Eurozone economies, meaning you buy way more German bonds than you buy Belgian bonds, for example, right? And so temporarily, you can buy more Italian bonds, but you can't do this permanently. And so that's where I think that the fight is right now. So I, I fear that we're just starting a new cycle where monetary policy is going in one direction and fiscal policy is pulling uh, in the other, where they're actually starting to undermine one another rather than um, than than going towards the same goal. I agree with Matthias, um, and this this it was very um, sort of iconic in the sense, or very telling, that in June uh, the ECB had one meeting where it sort of put forward their interest uh, rate agenda or their, their sort of the strong signal that it would set, uh, it was sending to. Um, to the markets on inflation um, and also the forward guidance that this would be sort of a gradual but uh, sort of uh, uh, persistent path, I think, as they called it. And then five days later, they basically, and that was sort of, that's their second issue that they're dealing with. Five days later, they had an emergency meeting uh, where they specifically addressed this question of, um, of the rise in spreads uh, of bonds and sort of announcing that they would uh, reinvest some of the some of the asset purchase of the old asset purchase programs would reinvest the money still sort of more country specifically they wouldn't say that like this but this is effectively what what is happening there and at the same time speeding up this work on um this anti-fragmentation tool that i think we've sort of alluded to uh, a little bit earlier but um that has sort of taken a prominence so i think it's sort of very clear now uh, on the ECB side that they have two mandates. Uh, one is price stability and the other one is, is sort of looking at this uh, question of fragmentation and the yield curve. Having said this, um, while the ECB's mandate in this regard is more complicated or the ECB's task is more complicated than the US's, we are not at the same situation as we were in 2012, 2015. And I think while it's still an unfinished monetary union, 
it is a maturing monetary union in the sense that we have a lot more practice. We have a lot more instruments and we have, we have real policy experience of what happens if you do X or what are the different tools that markets might react to. So while I'm watching this very closely, what's happening macroeconomically, uh, particularly with regard to monetary policy, I'm more confident than I was probably uh, five to 10 years ago um, with regard to the fact that there is a clear will and also a much better understanding um, how the monetary union uh, in Europe works. Let me ask um, something a little more, um, I don't want to say institutional, but sort of heading in that direction. That's the G7. Germany has the G7 presidency this year. They've uh, set out a number of uh, goals uh, for their presidency. you know, a lot, the, the, the sort of the, the headline is progress towards an equitable world. Uh, at this G7, um, they invited a number of uh, countries uh, outside from the emerge from emerging markets, uh, probably motivated a bit um, from, by politics and foreign policy. Uh, but how do you see the role of the G7 in terms of coordinating macro policy? Is that still a a useful function? Does it make any sense in a world where we also have the G20 and in where and where um, uh, you know the sort of the global economy is is probably it's fair to say um, sort of getting more diverse in terms of power centers? You know what what because that's what it, really when you look at the G7 that's what it was why it was founded in the 70s. It was all about you know macro coordination. Um, it, it, does that make any sense anymore? Let me try to try to answer this first. It's very clear, uh, Peter, from Indonesia's agenda for the G20 that they will just invite Russia, right? So the G20 is split in that sense, and it's hard to imagine it being a very effective body for macroeconomic coordination in a world where the West is splitting from the rest in that point of view, at least. Um, There are active sanctions on Russia, and there is a a real risk of potential secondary sanctions on on China, right? And where the relations between China and the West have worsened quite dramatically over the last five to to, to 10 years. First, of course, between the US and China, but now increasingly between uh, Europe and and China, right? And there's some pushback in in Europe towards this American view uh, that the West needs to be more strongly united with with China in mind. And I think these, these things were more out in the open with the discussion of NATO strategic concept, right? I mean, Europe is comfortable talking about Russia, but not quite about uh, China yet, especially a country like Germany that has significant economic interests in um, China to Katarina's earlier point, but it's outsourced its economic growth model to, to, to the Chinese. I believe it was uh, Constance Steltenmuller who said it in, in the Financial Times uh, at, at, at the time. Um, so the G7 can do things in a sense that they can coordinate Western economic policy. And in the end, I mean, Japan, Bank of England, ECB, Fed, still by far the most important um, uh, uh, central banks and, and, and monetary firepower that, that's out there. And in the end, it, it really is the Fed that, that, that will coordinate this uh, quite, quite directly. But you're absolutely right when it comes to fiscal policy, trade policy, other, other things. G7 has 
you know, it's weight, it's not what it used to be. And so including South Korea and Japan, uh, Japan is already included, but, but Australia, even India and so on, uh, is, you know, it's definitely something the West would want, but it's not like, especially a country like India will, will wholeheartedly follow this, right? They have, they have their own uh, interests. So a short answer to your question is it, it's become a lot more fragmented, right? I mean, if we look at the response to the global financial crisis, the first few years at least, G20 was actually remarkably successful in the, in the sense of coordinating uh, a kind of global uh, monetary and, and fiscal response. What we're seeing already, the response to COVID-19, and you could blame this to some extent on the Trump administration's kind of reflects that this was, um, that the US was going to go this alone in, in, in many ways. There was much less coordination there. Um, but now, given that there's the vision of you on how to deal with uh, Russia, whether the Russia-Ukraine conflict is a global conflict or whether it's, it is a local uh, war of you know, Russian sphere of influence and, and things like this, or this is between NATO and, and Russia and not necessarily something for the rest of the world to worry about. I think that distorts right, what, what these kind of uh, institutions uh, can, can do. And so it, from that point of view, I think there is a real uh, crisis for, for places like the G7 that they can no longer coordinate uh, broad macro policies in the world economy today that they could, let's say with the Plaza Agreement or the Louvre Agreement in, in the 1980s. I agree, but I wouldn't necessarily put it as an either or, and that there's also only sort of one right place for different issues. I think what we're seeing, and Matthias alluded to this, is this increasing multipolarity or fragmentation, if you want. So I always would say, do both. So keep, keep the G7 and, and still try to coordinate. And there is a sort of, there is a core understanding on some of the issues pertaining to sanctions. So uh, for that, you can use it. And so I would always say, keep it and, and see, see, see what flies. And when it comes, as Matthias has said, when it comes to the macroeconomic response, it's very difficult because two of the main origins of the uh, recent global inflation dynamics are not part of this G7 group, namely um, supply side disruptions that are at the moment really emanating uh, from a very still very tough COVID policy um, from China and, and the, the Russian war on Ukraine, which then has all these implications that we talked about on energy and food prices. So you're sort of, um, you're symptom chasing if you want um, but you can still do that in a coordinated way. And I think there is still this signal of um, a Western alliance that has come not only in security issues, but also on this uh, economic um, sort of warfare is maybe not the right word, but these sort of more defensive instruments of economics um, that we have seen actually, actually a, a revival of um, and an understanding that we do share some interests economically, but also politically uh, within the group of the G7. So um, I don't think the G7 is dead, but it's definitely not um, the same word, world as it was maybe 40 or 50 years ago. Well, I think we have uh, you know, contrasts on display in this discussion. On the one hand, we have uh, through, the, through the response to the Russian war in Ukraine, a, a really remarkable 
solidarity um, with of the United States, with its European allies and partners, um, uh, and with many other countries around the world, sort of the Western uh, advanced uh, democracies, uh, to to use that shorthand. At the same time, the the challenge of of divergence uh, in the approach to let's say the climate and energy transitions. Uh, Across the Atlantic, and the greater problem of fragmentation that uh, Katarina was uh, was just uh, uh, talking about, and all that against the backdrop of the question, as you formulated it, Katarina, what does sound fiscal policy mean in the face of short-term and longer-term crises that are, uh, you know, don't have any recent precedent. Uh, we have the short-term crisis of, of, a, of a war in Europe uh, and the longer-term energy transition, which is crucial for, uh, for dealing with uh, the problem of climate change. So I want to thank uh, both, of, both of our guests uh, today, uh, Katarina Gnat, Matthias Matais, for shedding light on, uh, on these dynamics, helping us understand better uh, what is uh, on the transatlantic agenda and what we need to be paying attention to. And I want to thank uh, <clears throat> also all of you for joining us for this episode. And we look forward to having you with us on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.